they've been married for 30 years. He's a pioneer of Catholic lay evangelization, and she has a master's degree in theology. Put on the coffee and get ready to open the scriptures. It's time for Bible with the Barbers. Now, here's Terry and Mary Danielle. Welcome to Bible with the Barbers on this Friday, July 16th, the Feast of Our Lady of Mount Carmel. Wow, Mary Danielle, I'm not babysitting our grandson, so <laughs> I'm with you, girl, all the way. Oh. And I just wanted to say, we just finished a very unique show with Father uh, Charles Murr and, um, and also Charles Cologne talking on, he's a historian, regarding the news about Pope Francis and the, and the extraordinary form of the Mass and how, uh, what's that going to actually affect in the church? So you might want to check that out on our podcast. But, you know, this is a great feast day, Mary Danielle. Um, I know you've got lots to talk about, but why don't we talk about a little bit the Carmelites and why is, why is Our Lady of Mount Carmel tied into the brown scapular? Well, the Carmelite order is the, la- is the oldest order in the church. They trace yes. their roots back <laughs> to the prophet... Elijah, I believe. That's right, Elijah. Mount, uh-huh. On Mount Carmel. Yep, there you go. At, in the Holy Land. And um, the, the Carmelites wear a work apron. It's, it's called the scapular. It's, a, it's actually a work apron that they wear to keep their habit clean. It's a piece of cloth that um, goes over their head, and it covers them in the back and in the front to the, you know, to the bottom of their habit to keep it clean. And um, St. Simon Jude Stock, when the Carmelites came to from the Holy Land, and at the time of persecution, um, I believe 1000s, 1100s, I don't remember the exact dates, and they were having a hard time. Uh, people didn't really understand the contemplative life that much. So Simon Stock prayed and prayed, and Our Lady told him that um, anyone who dies wearing this scapular will not suffer the fires of, of hell. But remember, this is not a superstition. To, to wear the scapular means to belong to Christ and to serve him as Mary did, and to be faithful to him as Mary did. Well, Mary was with him from the very beginning, right? He was conceived in her womb until the very end. She stood at the foot of the cross. She never walked away from suffering. She never tried to change the gospel. She never tried to tell people that, well, you know, if you don't feel comfortable with that, it's okay. He understands. She always lived the fullness. And what she said at the wedding feast of Cana, she says to us now, she said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So it's not about watering down. And so she never does. And so the Carmelites live this spirituality of trying to imitate the Blessed Mother and her tremendous love for her son and her imitation of Christ. And of course, she's totally sinless. We can't imitate her in her sinlessness, but we can imitate her in her perfect trust and her love. We can ask her to share with us that trust and that love. And so this brown scapular um, is when we wear it. And I remember in college, I used to try and encourage the, the students in my, you know, that I met that were Catholic. I was at a Catholic college when I got my bachelor's degree um, to wear it. And I remember um, I told one young man, I said, if you die wearing this, you can't, you won't go to hell. And he said, oh, give me one, give me one. And I said, but that implies that you're going to try and live your life according to the gospel. To put on this scapular is to say, yes, Lord, I take my baptismal promises seriously. I will renew them daily, and I will commit myself daily to trying to live the fullness of the faith. It's, it's not about superstition, okay? Sacramentals are not superstition. They're not good luck charms. 
They're reminders of the presence of God, of God's constant presence in our life to fill us with his presence and his love. You know, our victory is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And Christ Jesus is the one who gained the victory for us. In the book of Hebrews in chapter 12, it tells us that we are to look to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. And it is he, it is his blood. If you read the book of Hebrews, which I would encourage everyone to really do, read and study the book of Hebrews, it talks about the suffering of Christ. In the Old Testament, there were sacrifices that were offered again and again and again. And there were priests who were had to offer sacrifices for themselves and their own sins and the sins of the people. And and it was, but but the, sin, the blood of goats and calves and bulls could not take away the sins of the people. So Christ comes and he offers himself as the expiation for our sin. Once for all, yes, once for all. And as Catholics, we believe there is only one priest, the high priest, Jesus Christ. He is the one who has gained the victory for us. He's the one through whom we win the victory. And so we look for our victory in Christ and his mother is there to help us. Mary was there at every step of the way. You know, Jesus spent 30 years with Mary in Nazareth before he began his public life. His public life was three years long. We learn from the Gospel of John at a careful reading of the Gospel of John. And Mary was there in those 30 years, his formative years, his years where he's not working miracles, despite what um, some movies or uh, books about the, you know, the, the young Messiah. No, Jesus wasn't accidentally working miracles or, you know, he knew who he was and he knew what his mission was. And because he was the high priest, the tradition, um, according to scholars, it was that the Jewish, uh, the priest was ordained when he was 30. This is when he received his priesthood. So Jesus goes to John to be baptized when he's about 30 years old, right? And John, of course, is from the house of Levi. Remember John the Baptist, Zechariah, he's a priest. And John baptizes Jesus, and it's to fulfill all righteousness, not because Jesus needs to repent of sin. And John recognizes this, you know, and, and yet yeah, this is all tied to living the Carmelite spirituality. And this is Mary was there every step of the way with her son, praying with him, learning to be another Christ. The first disciple, Mary. Now, Joseph died before Jesus began his public life. So Joseph had also learned at Jesus' side how to be his disciple. Joseph died, so he wasn't to continue to help the church from earth. Mary was to continue and remain with the church even after the death and resurrection of Jesus. She remains with the church. She's there at Pentecost. So Mary is the one, and she's not there to glorify herself. God glorifies her. We don't have to glorify her in terms of, we couldn't glorify her more than God did. He made her his mother. In the fourth commandment, honor thy father and thy mother. Jesus kept all the commandments. So we have this great feast day for the Carmelites and for all of those who want to be associated in any way with the Carmelites. And most of all, anybody who wants to be associated with Christ and his mother, that to, to, to teach us how to be as Christ was, to be that willing victim who would offer himself for the salvation of the world. Now, Christ, of course, is God. He offers himself for the salvation of the whole world. You know, we owed a debt we couldn't pay, so he paid a debt he didn't owe. God became man, and he took to himself a human nature, a sinless human nature. 
just as he gave his mother a sinless human nature. She wasn't Christ. She wasn't God. She's not a goddess. She's a creature. She always remains a creature, but she's exalted by God himself. It is God who sent the angel to say to her, Hail, kekare tomeni in the Greek, you who have the fullness of grace. You're already full of grace. You continue in grace and you will continue in grace till the end of time, till the end of till all eternity. That, that was God's greeting to Mary. That wasn't something the Catholic Church made up. So we want to follow the example of our Blessed Mother in her following of Christ. And we want to follow Christ. And Mary followed him perfectly. So we look to her to help us. You know, oftentimes when you're learning a new skill, it's, it's like that. Ask anybody. You know, you don't, you don't go up onto, on a roof and know how to lay a roof without someone showing you. You don't become a bricklayer without someone showing you. You know, someone has to teach you. And so God gave us his mother at the foot of the cross. Jesus said, woman, behold thy son. And to John, he said, behold thy mother. And he's speaking to all of us. John represents all of us there. So beautiful feast day. Our lady is a great, great, holy woman. She is our mother because Jesus gave her to us as our mother. She is the mother of God. That was God who did that, not me. Um, God came into this world through her. He brought all of his grace through her. Christ is grace incarnate. He's God incarnate, uncreated grace incarnate. And so um, she is the channel through which grace comes to the world. God did that. God did that. So we want to honor her as the mother of God. And we want to look to her for her example to show us how to live fully the gospel and the gospel life. And yes, she does. And she lives it quite quietly and quite hiddenly. You know, we don't hear a lot about Mary. Um, you know, she, obviously she's there at the birth of Jesus. She's, she has these beautiful, this beautiful hymn, the Magnificat, she sings, which we can re- repeat every day as a great hymn of praise to God, which was given to us by Our Lady, which she learned also. She learned from partially from the Old Testament, Hannah. Read the story of, of Hannah, the mother of Samuel. And it's just the beautiful connection with the faith and, and Our Lady's place in salvation history which she didn't manufacture for herself or garner for herself. It was something that God gave to her as a gift. And she graciously accepts it with all humility and trust, knowing that everything depends on God. And, and that's it. We, we work as if everything depends on us, but we, we pray first and we pray as if everything depends on God because everything does depend on God. It's not our merit. It's God's grace. And he attaches merit to what we do because God is gracious and he's generous so um, Terry got me off there on the Our Lady of Mount Carmel and the meaning of Our Lady of Mount Carmel and this beautiful woman that we have as our mother who teaches us to love God so very, very much. And um, excuse me. Mary, I, the reason I had you do that is because I think it's important that people understand these feast days and where they come from. And when we come back, we'll get into the content. But I just think... Our Lady of Mount Carmel, please pray for us. Amen. And I want to thank all those who do donate to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Just go to vmpr.org or call us at 877-526-2151. And we really appreciate the monthly donors. We've had a slump right now. We appreciate the next donation. Stay with us, family. We'll be right back.
Now, back to Bible with the Barbers. If you have a question or comment, call 888-526-2151. Here's Terry and Mary Danielle. Welcome back to Bible with the Barbers on this Friday, July the 16th. And I heard that great um, advertisement there from Dr. Sandoval. I hope you're all signing up. I hope you're all coming. The conference is, is coming up August the 7th. That's what, three weeks from today? Mm-hmm. Three weeks from tomorrow? Yep. Please sign up and come to that conference. It's so important. And married couples, it's so important to understand a biblical perspective. And the church, of course, when she teaches us about human sexuality and marriage, she's giving us a biblical perspective. Yes. So I really hope everybody's going to sign up for that conference and we get a lot of people. We'd like to fill the chapel. So come on down and, and join us. And uh, thank you so much, Dr. Sandoval, for, for uh, putting the, the little spur under us to get this one going. I think this is a very important conference for us. So today we have the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 12, 1 through 8. And it says, Jesus was going through the field of grain on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, See, your disciples are doing what is unlawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? How he went into the house of God Mm -hmm. and ate the bread of offering, which neither he nor his companions, but only the priests could lawfully eat. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests serving in the temple violate the Sabbath and are innocent? I say to you something greater than the Sabbath, than, excuse me, I say to you something greater than the temple is here. If you knew what this meant, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned these innocent men. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus is there, and it's interesting that always, always, the Pharisees are there. They're watching him, watching him, watching him. What? For any misstep, they're always looking out to do something to condemn him. Mm -hmm. They don't like his message. They haven't liked it from the beginning. It makes them a little uncomfortable, and so they want to find a way to condemn him or, um, what do you say, make him... um, (laughs) uh, unbel- what is, did you get the people to reject him? Mm-hmm. What, I can't, I'm sorry. The, the word escapes me right now, but that when people want you get, you get someone else to reject somebody, you, you discredit. Thank you. You discredit. They want to discredit him. Okay. So they're, he, he's walking, they're walking through this field of grain. They're just picking off grain heads and eating them. Like they're hungry, you know? And they're like, Oh no, you can't do that on the Sabbath. Well, the Pharisees had de- developed these, elaborate legalistic laws and they were very legalistic you know right down to how many steps you could take on the sabbath but they love they left out the idea of charity and the the idea of taking care of one another remember they changed god's law in order to um if a man were to say well to his parents anything that i have is korban that is dedicated to the temple Mm -hmm. and that didn't mean he had to give it to the temple he just had to say it was dedicated to the temple then, according to the Pharisees, well, then he didn't have to take care of his parents. And Jesus said, you dismiss God's laws and replace them with the laws of men. 
they had dismissed the fourth commandment, honor your father and your mother, and they had replaced it with another law. This man can say, everything I have is dedicated to the temple. He can still use it any way he wants. He can use it for anything he wants to take care of himself, but he doesn't have to take care of his parents anymore. Right. Isn't that nice? Let's get out of it. So they're not really concerned about God's law, but they are concerned about having a certain um, appearance before the world. And how do I look before the world? And this is what they're con concerned with. And Jesus points this out in several places in the Gospels. You know, they widen their phylacteries and make a, a show of long prayers. And they do many things in public to be noticed. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not what our faith is about. And so he gives the example of David. And um, David was, that's in 1 Samuel 21, 1 through 6, where David is walking through excuse me, David is fleeing from Saul and he and his men are hungry and they go to the priest and he, they said, do you have any bread? And he said, all I have is the bread of offering. And David said, give it to us. And, and all the priests asked, he says, well, did you, are you abstaining from women? And he said, yeah. So he, he allows David to eat the bread of offering, which was only allowed for the priest. So there are, you know, laws are there for a reason. Yes. But they're not, don't be legalistic about it. And there are times when you can relax the law for the sake of charity. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't mean we disregard the Ten Commandments. That doesn't mean we can put aside the Ten Commandments. Okay? These were ritual laws according, you know, to, to govern the liturgy so that the liturgy didn't become profane. The liturgy isn't something that should be profane. Remember, in the Old Testament, the Jews didn't make up their own liturgy. God revealed it to Moses. He taught Moses how to worship. He told him how to make the vestments of the priests. He told him how to make the tabernacle. He told him how to make the Ark of the Covenant. He told him how to make the candle stands. And, and when the temple would eventually be built, there were specific directions from God because the worship of God is the worship of God and God is God and we are not. Mm -hmm. And we need to try to keep the worship of God holy and sacred. But the external trappings are not the essence of the worship. The essence of the worship is the heart of love that comes before God in childlike trust to say, Lord, I am yours and I depend on you for everything. And everything of this earth is yours. That's why the gold and the silver and the beautiful things, because everything on this earth is God's. He made it. We give it back to him in worship. But does that mean that if we just have a simple little chapel or, excuse me, in the wilderness, what did the Hebrews have for 40 years? A tent, a meeting tent. And remember when David gets to Jerusalem and becomes king and he's, he's living in a house of cedar. And he says, but the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord is in a tent. I need to build him a house. And Nathan the prophet says, do whatever you have in mind. And, and that night the Lord tells Nathan, no, David's not the one to build me the temple. David was a man of war. I don't want him to build the temple. His son will build the temple. And so we come before the Lord and we humble ourselves and we ask for what we need, but we don't condemn other people because they don't necessarily follow all the rubrics we think they should. Or, you know, and, and remember, this isn't putting aside the Ten Commandments. Jesus isn't saying you don't have to keep the Ten Commandments. And some people think that. They think, oh, well, Jesus totally did away with everything in the Old Testament. No, honey, he didn't. There were things in the old law in terms of worship, in terms of animal sacrifice, in terms of dietary laws, 
that were provisional, even circumcision. It was provisional. They were all signs pointing to something greater. They were pointing to the new and eternal covenant. Again, read the book of Hebrews that talks about this. It talks about the priesthood of Jesus Christ and what it means. It's deep. It's profound. And it it tells us that Jesus comes as the high priest. Why? Because every priest offers sacrifice. That's what a priest is ordained to do. He's ordained to offer sacrifice. Well, what was the sacrifice Jesus offers? He offers himself. He offers himself. He is the sacrifice that frees us from sin, that gives us the victory over sin and death. And so when he's walking through the grain fields and these men are hungry, he allows his men to eat. And he said, you wouldn't have condemned these innocent men if you understood the scripture. It is mercy I desire and not sacrifice. And that's a quote from the Old Testament, Hosea 6, 6. Mm -hmm. I desire mercy. You know, I don't want you to come to the altar like the Pharisee who stood up before the Lord and said, oh, Lord, look at me. Look at how good I am. I fast three times a week and I do this and I do that and I'm so wonderful and I keep, I'm not like this publican who's standing in the back here, this sinner. Remember the publican, the tax collectors? And what's the tax collector doing? He's got his head bowed and he says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Mm -hmm. We need to learn from the publican. We need to stop being like the Pharisee who stands before God and says, look at all the good things I did for you, Lord. What are you going to give me? Don't you owe me something, Lord? I've been so good. I've kept the commandments. I've done all this. Remember, even the rich young man who comes to Jesus, he kept all the commandments. He kept them perfectly. I've kept all these from my youth. What is lacking? And Jesus said, if you want to be perfect, go and sell everything you have. Give it to the poor and come follow me. <laughs> Hard gospel, isn't it? Okay, you've kept all the commandments. What's lacking? What, what's more? I need to give myself totally to Christ. I need to let go of all my attachment to everything in this world. <laughs> and sometimes the greatest attachment we have is to our own ideas, our own preconceived notion of how everything should look in this world. You know, when Jesus came... He took upon himself suffering. Read Isaiah 53. Is it Isaiah 53, the suffering servant psalm? Who could have believed what we have seen, or to whom has the hand of the Lord been revealed? Like a sapling he grew up before him, like a shoot in the parched land. And we found in him no stately bearing, nothing that would make us look at him. We thought of him as one despised smitten by God and rejected by the people, a man of infirmity accustomed to suffering, a man in whose presence the people hide their faces. And it goes on, and then it goes on to say, yet ours were the weaknesses he endured, ours were the sufferings he bore. Excuse me, ours were the weaknesses he bore, ours were the sufferings he endured. In other words, Christ comes to bear our suffering, He didn't come to remove it. He doesn't come to do away with it. He comes to redeem its meaning. Do you get it? Our salvation in Christ, our victory in Christ, isn't that we don't have to suffer. We don't run away from the cross. It's that the cross, all of our suffering now has meaning in Christ Jesus. Bishop Sheen said, if people understood redemptive suffering, 
that all of our sufferings can be offered up in union with Christ to help redeem the world. That what St. Paul wrote, I fill up in my own flesh what is lacking in Christ for the sake and the sufferings of Christ, was lacking in the sufferings of Christ for the sake of his body, the church. Paul, how could you be so arrogant? Well, you know what? It wasn't Paul who was speaking. It was the Holy Spirit speaking through him. And on behalf of all of us, to all of us, if you will bear your sufferings in union with Jesus, Bishop Sheen said, our hospitals and our homes could become nuclear spiritual power plants from which the grace of God would just explode on the world. All of our sufferings. I fill up in my own flesh what is lacking in the suffering of Christ for the sake of his body, the church. Therefore, I'm content with weakness and with suffering and with all the trials. I'm not going to complain anymore. I'm not going to kick against the goat. I'm not going to carry on the pity party. I'm going to Cease the inner dialogue and change the subject of my meditation and enter into the passion of Christ. Because only if I share in his suffering can I share in his victory. Mary, that's Colossians chapter 1 for those who are wondering about St. Paul, where that is in the Bible you're referring to. Thank you. More with the Bible with the Barbers. And again, we thank you for joining us, family. I hope the Bible study is inspiring you to fall deeper in love with Jesus Christ. Now, back to Bible with the Barbers. If you have a question or comment, call 888-526-2151. Here's Terry and Mary Danielle. Welcome back to Bible with the Barbers on this Friday, July the 16th, 2021. So we were talking about today's gospel and Jesus saying, um, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And I mentioned it comes from Hosea, the, the prophet Hosea 6.6. And, and that's exactly what it says. It says, um, for I desire mercy and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than Holocaust. So if our religion is just an external thing, it's not pleasing God. God wants us to enter into a personal relationship with him where we know him because he knows us and he desires to reveal himself to us. And it's interesting because Jesus, not only here in Matthew 12, But in Matthew 9, um, he had already quoted this same passage in um, Matthew 9, just had it here a second ago. Well, let's see here. We're looking at Matthew, Matthew 9, 13. And in Matthew 9, 13, again, you have, um, you know, Jesus is, is, has called Matthew. He's eating in Matthew's house with all the tax collectors and sinners and the Pharisees are objecting. And he says, look, I have come to call sinners to repentance. I haven't come to call the righteous. And he said, go and learn the meaning. Go and learn the meaning of this. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Again, go back and read Hosea and come to learn what I was saying through the prophet. I desire that you come to know me. I don't just want your external sacrifice. And in this, in this whole passage here about, you know, Jesus is picking the grain on the Sabbath and he says, you know, what he does here is he makes this comparison and he, and he's telling is he's doing, he's saying three things. Mercy is more important than the temple regulations. Mercy is more important than the temple regulations. Okay. Not the 10 commandments. Okay. And remember mercy and justice in God are one attribute. 
So it's not merciful to allow a person to live in sin and not tell them that sin is sin and it's offensive and it's degrading to them because sin degrades us as human beings. God made us for union with himself and sin separates us from God. So that's degrading, okay? Sin is a rejection of goodness. It's a rejection of being. It's a rejection of what God made. Everything that is, everything that exists was made by God. God is being and he's the source of all that exists. He didn't make sin. So when we sin, we're offending God and we're degrading ourselves. So mercy is more important than the temple regulation. The temple laws themselves take precedence over the Sabbath. Remember the, the high priest, the priests in the temple could break the Sabbath without incurring guilt. So the temple laws take precedence over the Sabbath. And therefore, mercy is more important than the Sabbath. So the Sabbath rest, the purpose, and that's it, that's the people had forgotten is the purpose of the Sabbath rest was to enter into the rest of God, to enter into a loving personal conversation with God, whereby they know God, they converse with God familiarly, familiarly, and, and they know him as a loving father who loves them. And they're entering into this personal relationship, okay? And th this is the victory in Christ. In Christ, we're no longer bound up by a, a fear, um, a servial fear. We're not slaves of God. We're his dearly beloved children. St. John will say in, his letter, in his, one of his letters, behave like God as his very dear children. So this is what we want to do. We want to enter into this victory that Christ has won for us by the Paschal Mystery. And it's interesting, the first reading for today, for Friday um, of the 13th week in ordinary time, 15th, I'm sorry, we're in 15, we're 15 week in ordinary time, is, is the reading of the, the Paschal lamb, the Passover lamb, the Old Testament reading from Exodus, where Moses is giving the instruction about the Pas Passover lamb, that God is going to finally, you know, God sent Moses to deliver the Israelites from the Egyptian slavery. Moses has worked all these signs. There's been, is it nine plagues already? The Pharaoh hasn't budged. And it says God hardened his heart. It's not because God hardened his heart. It's the Hebrew expression. There's no difference between cause and effect in Hebrew. And so um, it's like superlatives. You don't have superlatives in Hebrew. So by saying God hardened his heart, it just means that Pharaoh set his heart against God. And, and so Pharaoh refuses to let the people go. So God says, okay, now he will let you go. Because I'm going to go through Egypt and I'm going to kill the firstborn in every family and of every animal. I'm going to slay the firstborn of everyone in Egypt. So you are to sacrifice a lamb it's to be a two-year-old male without blemish, no broken bones. You're to roast him whole. You're to eat him whole. You not only have to kill the lamb, mark your doorposts and your lintels with the blood of the lamb. You have to eat the lamb. This is a prefigurement, a prefigurement of Christ. And we know that when Christ came, he's identified as the Lamb of God. Well, the Lamb in the Old Testament did what? He was sacrificed. His life was sacrificed. His blood became the blood that delivered the Israelites from the angel of death. So that when the angel of death passed through Egypt, their children, their firstborn children didn't die. And so, but he's a prefigurement. He's pointing, the, the lamb of the Old Testament, the Passover of the Jews in Egypt, 
that's pointing toward the Paschal mystery of Christ, where he will suffer that substitutionary suffering. He will suffer on our behalf, not so that we don't have to suffer, though, but so that our suffering gains a new meaning. It becomes redeemed, and we gain the victory in Christ. It is in Christ that we are freed from sin and death, okay? We have, when we look at the Gospels, when we look at the early church, you know, the, the apostles didn't fully understand what was going on. You have the death of Christ, you have his resurrection. When he died, they're just, they're devastated. They don't know what to do. They hide in the upper room and lock the doors. And then on Sunday morning, he rises from the dead, and it's like, okay, he's risen, but they still don't know quite what to do with themselves. How do we know? Because they, he, they were told to go to Galilee and they would see him. So they're up there in Galilee. They're waiting for the Lord to show himself. And Peter says, I'm going fishing. I'm going back to what I know. I'm going to return to the life I knew. I'm a fisherman. So he goes out fishing and they fish all night. And they don't catch anything. And in the morning, Jesus is there and they have that great catch of fish, right? They had been, the, the, the scandal of the cross hasn't sunk in. They don't understand yet. They will not know until the Holy Spirit comes and enlightens them the full meaning of the cross and the resurrection. They haven't gotten it yet, all right? They're still fixed on an earth. They were so fixated on an earthly. They thought Christ was going to establish an earthly kingdom. Do we know that for sure? Well, in the Acts of the Apostles, when he takes them out for the ascension to the mount that, that he's called them, they say to him, Lord, is the time come? Are you going to establish the kingdom of Israel now? <laughs> it's not for you to know times and places the Father's reserved for himself. But you will receive power from on high when you receive the Holy Spirit, and then you will be my witnesses. He didn't come to establish an earthly kingdom. He told Pilate that, didn't he? My kingdom is not of this world. But even today, aren't we still looking for an earthly kingdom? Oftentimes, even in the liturgy, aren't we looking for a perfect liturgy here on earth? But is our heart really in it? Have we given up our sins? Are we really breaking with sin and going to mass and saying, Lord, I give up sin. I renounce sin. I renew my baptismal commitment. I want to live for you alone, Lord. Or is it just like, oh yeah, it feels good to go to church on Sunday. It's nice to be with everybody. Nice, warm, fuzzy fellowship, whatever. And it doesn't matter what the external trappings of the mass are, by the way. You know, there are 22 rites in the Catholic Church. The Latin rite isn't the only rite. It's the rite we, you know, it's the biggest rite. It's the rite that most people belong to, but it's not the only rite. There are other ways to celebrate the Mass, and it's still the Mass. The Mass, there's only one Mass, because there's only one Paschal mystery. There's only one sacrifice of Christ. He sacrificed himself once for all. Once he died on the cross, that was it. He's never going to die again. He is in heaven, forever making intercession for us. That is absolutely abundantly clear. In the book of Hebrews, in the book of Revelation, throughout the scriptures, he died once for all, he will never die again. But now all of our sufferings can be offered in union with him. Through the Holy Spirit, we come to understand that the cross is his exaltation. But it gains its full meaning in his resurrection and his glorification, right? So even the angels, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1, 11 and 12, even the angels long to look more deeply into these mysteries. The weakness of God and the cross in the plan of providence. They marvel at this. 
that God would become one of his creatures and then allow his creature to put him to death. And this was his exaltation. (laughs) The angels just marvel. They don't complain. They don't rebel. There were those who rebelled. And when they rebelled, they were kicked out. But the angels who didn't rebel will never rebel. You know, once an angel is good, he's always good. He's never going to rebel. He doesn't change his mind. So gradually through the aid of the Holy Spirit, the early church was able to grasp the significance of what had happened in the Paschal mystery when Christ was crucified, buried, and then rose from the dead and eventually ascended into heaven, right? And when the apostles received the gift of the Holy Spirit, what happens? You have these weak, cowardly, simple, uneducated men, right? Who have been hiding away in the upper room and all of a sudden what? They are transformed into fearless proclaimers of the gospel, powerful missionaries ready to die for Christ and for the salvation of souls. Did we get it? They're ready to die for Christ. Are we ready to die for Christ? Have we really committed ourselves to the Lord? You know, maybe we're afraid. Then ask for the grace to be brave. And there are saints of the Catholic Church God doesn't remove all of our sufferings and he doesn't remove all our temptations. You know, being a Christian doesn't mean that I'll never feel my emotions. I have 11 emotions. They're all good. God made them. Love, hate, joy, sorrow, desire, aversion, audacity, fear, hope, despair, anger. Yes, and they're all holy and there are holy expressions of all of them. Our bodies are good. We are good and we can join in union with Christ in offering our sufferings We can gain the victory in Christ through the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. And we too can become brave witnesses of Christ, even in the midst of a troubled world. Don't go away. We'll be back. Thank you for joining us here on the Bible with the Word. Now back to Bible with the Barbers. If you have a question or comment, Call 888-526-2151. Here's Terry and Mary Danielle. Thank you for joining us on Bible with the Barbers on this Friday, July the 16th, the Feast of Our Lady of Mount Carmel. It's the 15th week in Ordinary Time, and we're talking about our victory with Christ, okay? We're going to talk about our newness of life in Christ now for a little while, and I'm going to give you, a, probably in rapid succession, I'm going to try and, we have 15 minutes here, so I have to talk really fast and get this done. So just write it all down and listen to this podcast. Make sure you share it and listen to it again and again and again until you get it all down, okay? And we'll give you a test at the end of the month. No, just kidding. Um, thank you for those who listen. Thank you for our supporters. Uh, by the way, sign up for the, the conference. It's coming out August 7th, the Conference on Human Sexuality. It's a very important topic. We need to have a Christian biblical perspective on the meaning of who we are as a body, soul, spirit, component, creature. We're very complex, man. You know, the most complex creature God made. So our newness in Christ, through faith and baptism, we have been united with Christ and participate in his newness of life. Romans 6, 3, and 4 tells us, we were indeed buried with him through baptism into death. So that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might live newness of life. In baptism, we were supposed to have died with Christ. Died to what? Died to sin. And now we live a newness of life that is life of union with God in Jesus Christ our Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
The newness consists in our incorporation into Christ, his divine love. Jesus revealed to us the divine love by giving himself wholly even unto death in obedience to the Father. And thus he gives meaning to our life too. He himself gives us new life. He dwells within us in, in, and is our way, right? Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he said in John thirteen thirty four, a new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So, and as I have loved you, so you also should love one another. Through the gift of the Holy Spirit given to us already at baptism and fortified in confirmation, we can follow Christ and by his grace strive toward the perfection of charity. Yeah, perfection of charity. What was John say? He says in his letter, love is not perfect in one who is afraid. Perfect love casts out fear. So we ask God by the Holy Spirit to perfect that love in us, that we will love one another as he loved us. Jesus is the divine exemplar of that love, right? In Gautam et Spes from Vatican II, paragraph 22, it says, or number 22, I should say, the Christian man conformed to the likeness of the son who is the firstborn of many brethren. Remember the firstborn of many brethren, Roman 8, 29 and Colossians 3, 10 through 14. The Christian man first received, it received the first fruits of the spirit by which he becomes capable of discharging the new law of love. So the Christian man conformed to the likeness of the son. The son is the firstborn of many brethren. And the Christian man received the first fruits of the spirit. See Romans 8, 23, by which he becomes capable of discharging the new law of love. Romans 8, 1 through 11. We have to discharge this new law of love. It is love. It is mercy I desire. First, I desire that you love one another. Through the Spirit, who is the pledge of our inheritance, see Ephesians 1.14, the Spirit is the pledge of our inheritance. The whole man is renewed from within. We aren't just a dunghill covered with snow. We believe that we are renewed from within. We are transformed by the grace of God, even to the achievement of the redemption of the body. Our bodies, too, will abide in hope. Romans 8.23, the redemption of our body. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the death dwells in you, then he who raised Jesus from the dead will also bring to life your mortal bodies because of his spirit who dwells in you. See Romans 8, 11 and Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, 14. And that's from Vatican II, Gautam, it says number 22. So the Holy Spirit, we're looking for the redemption of our bodies, not just our souls our bodies and souls, and to be transformed into a living image of Christ, to really be transformed from within, to be conformed to the image of Christ. In this world, we'll always have challenges, battles, fights, you know, battles to fight, but God is with us and does not abandon us so long as we believe and place our hope in him. For Christ, for in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, what matters is faith working through charity. See Galatians 5, 6. So again, it's not about the external trappings. It's about that faith and trust in the Lord. And don't give up the fight. 
We're not get, God, Jesus didn't come to remove all the suffering or take away the battles, but he's with us. We're not alone. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. He's given us his spirit. We can do the kind of things the apostles did. We have baptism. We have the grace of God. Pressing upon the Christian, to be sure, are the need and the duty to battle against evil, though my, through, excuse me, through manifold tribulations and even to suffer death. But linked with the Paschal mystery and pattern on the dying of Christ, he will hasten forward to resurrection in the strength which comes from hope. See Philippians 3.19 and Romans 8.17. And again, that's Gautamit Spes, Vatican II, paragraph 22. Pressing upon the Christian, to be sure, are the need and the duty to battle against evil through manifold tribulations and even to suffer death. We're not supposed to live in fear. We're supposed to face death with the courage of knowing that we will share in the resurrection of Christ. If I have died with Christ, I will also be raised with him. Please, God, grant us the grace of final perseverance. Okay? So what is new for us is that our faith hopefully has been deepened and strengthened through the commemoration of the Paschal Mystery. Every year when we celebrate Easter, and that, that Lent and then Easter is to renew our faith, renew our faith and strengthen it so that we can become inflamed again with the love of Jesus. It is love I desire. It is mercy I desire, not sacrifice. I don't want your Holocaust and burnt offerings. I want your heart. I want you, God says to us. Our love for Jesus should be renewed in gratitude for the redemption that he has won for us and for the gift of the Spirit. With these graces, we want to face our everyday life with new courage and love. The church and the world are standing in great need, great need of us Christians to respond to Jesus Christ in love and to love him despite all the frightening things that are going on. It's not about the governmental system or the economics or who's in control in the world. It's about loving God with our whole heart and mind and soul and strength. The Lord is still God. God is still God. We won the victory in Christ. We have been baptized into his death. Let us live his resurrection in this world. Ask God for the joy of Christianity, of living in union with Christ so that we can show the world that yes, following Christ is a joyful, joyful task and suffering becomes joyful. In his presence, so many examples of this, of people who suffered greatly. Do you feel like David before Goliath in the world we're living in? Our political, our political situation in our country, the economic situation, that, that trying to lock us down in fear of death. Oh, you don't want to get sick. You're going to die. I'm sorry, everybody. Guess what? We're all going to die. None of us gets out alive, but rejoice. Death is the door through which we pass to get to eternity. Jesus Christ redeemed the meaning of human death. Yes, it came as a punishment for sin, but it's been redeemed in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, okay? I beg God that if they come to martyr me, I can hide somewhere. But if he wants me to die a martyr, only in that moment will he give me the grace. I don't have the moment right now to face martyrdom. I don't have the grace to face martyrdom at this moment because I'm not facing it. But if I live my life moment by moment, day by day, faithful to Christ, living in his presence, if he calls me to martyrdom, in that moment he will give me the grace. 
but I beg God for conversion of myself, my family members, my neighbors, my neighborhood, my community, my state, the country, the world. We need Christ. By the way, he's present in the Eucharist. Come and adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord. He's here in the Eucharist. It doesn't matter whether you're Catholic or not. It's not our belief that makes him present. He said it. This is my body. This is my blood. So Jesus calls us to save with him, to overcome evil with him through faith and loving expiation and intercession. By the way, I didn't write this, okay? We get a quarterly newsletter from the Opus Angelorum, the Opus Sanctorum Angelorum, and this is their summer circular letter for 2021, and the initials at the end of the letter are SMB, I believe. SMB. I, that might be Sister Maria Basilea. But one of the members of the of the either the Orders Canon Regular Holy Cross or the Sisters of the Holy Cross wrote this, okay? And there this is the truth. This is the gospel. This is the gospel that the church preaches. Jesus calls us to save with him, to overcome evil with him through faith and loving expiation and intercession. Through faith, loving expiation and intercession. Whoever is begotten by God conquers the world. And the victory that conquers the world is our faith. 1 John 5, 4. Our faith conquers this world. We don't have to be afraid. We are called to keep our eyes fixed on God, to remain near to him in prayer and the sacraments, that we may receive faith. By faith, we may receive. By faith, we may receive the grace to carry with him the cross for the salvation of the world. We're not running from the cross. We carry the cross with Christ. And again, what was it? We keep our eyes fixed on God, right? Hebrews 12. In Hebrews 12, it says, verse 2, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So we keep our eyes fixed on Christ our God. We have faith in him. We trust in his mercy and goodness. We know that he is faithful, and he will not abandon us. Call on the Lord. Live our faith to the full. Thank you for joining us. I hear that music, and it's just time. Oh, my word. There's so much, so much. Please study the book of Hebrews and, and come to appreciate the priesthood of Christ. Come to appreciate your faith. Renew your faith every day. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us. Please go to our website and sign up for that August 7th conference on human sexuality. We also have a women conference that's going to be in September. So um, thank you for all of those who support us. And especially thank you all of those who support us with your prayers, your sacrifices. All of our sufferings can be offered up in union with Jesus to help to redeem the world. And Lord Jesus, fill us with your love. And help us to spread your love and joy wherever we go by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray that we may always be faithful witnesses. Amen.